Great to see you all this morning. Thanks for being here again. We're continuing our study of the book of Numbers, or as it is known in Hebrews, in the wilderness. And we are glad to be going on this wilderness journey together. Um, uh, one of the people who is such an impar- important part of this wilderness journey is Barbara Ann Stevens. You all may know she had surgery last week. She's doing well. She's Her physical therapy is going well. Uh, and uh, Suzanne Letch just gave me a great uh, uh, report this morning. And so we want to continue to pray for her. And I know that her small group is is soldiering forth as Christian soldiers do. So um, good job. And, and, uh, and we're, we're just going to be praying for Barbara Ann. I don't know if you're watching Barbara Ann, but we're all praying for you. Let's, let's just... Let's just Send our love to Barbara Ann. She is probably watching, or if not, she can watch it on video later. So, um, great to see everybody. Let's just, uh, let's go ahead and let's open with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a wonderful day to be gathered together as your people. What a wonderful day to, to be in your word, to be in prayer, and to, and to be in your church. We ask you now, O oh Lord, to help us to understand more fully not only the, the journey of the people, but the role of the people as you have called them, as you called them to be your people, your chosen race, your royal priesthood. Now, Lord, we ask you to open the word to our hearts, to open it to our minds, open it to our eyes and ears, and especially, Lord, open it to our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we've been talking about the wilderness and the journey through the wilderness over the last few weeks. Um, and one of the best things I can say about going through the wilderness, being, uh, you know, going out and doing something like this, is that you don't do it alone. Um, you, of course, we read the story of Jesus being in the wilderness, and it's, it's particularly difficult on him. After 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, of starvation, he is then met by only one other person. That one person is Satan. That kind of wrecks it. Um, I mean, if he was having a good time out there, that kind of blows it. I mean, if you're, you're out in the woods and suddenly somebody shows up you don't want there, not, that, not, a, good, uh, not a good combination of things. But, um, but then we see at the, end of his, at the end of his wilderness experience that, the, uh, that angels came and ministered to him. And so he was not, he was not out there completely alone. The angels came and ministered to him. There's something about being in the, in the wilderness with other people that makes it bearable, that makes it enjoyable, that makes it, uh, that makes it survivable. And, you know, if you've ever been out on a camping trip or anything like that, it's, you know, yes, there are maybe times for, for solitude, but, but those sorts of things are more fun when you are with people. That's true of our faith lives. That's true of just about any human endeavor. It's more fun to, to do it together. God has made us as social Beings, He's made us as social creatures. He said in the, in the Garden of Eden, it is not good that the man should be alone. So, he, so God created Eve so that Adam, Adam, excuse me, created Eve so that Adam would not be alone. So we, have, we know that God intends us to be with people. Um, we talked about last week in terms of statistics and logistics that it's important that if you're going to move a big group of people, through the wilderness or in any endeavor, you need some organization. You need you need discipline. You need roles to be defined. You need uh, you, you need resources. You need all of those things. And so we covered that last week. You need to know how many people are with you. You need to know how many how many people you take it on the trip and how many you're supposed to return with. 
All of those things are important. And as we kind of begin to focus in today, we're going to talk about one of the most important and critical factors for, uh, for making a journey through the wilderness, and that is making sure that everybody has a role and knows their role and everybody has a purpose and knows their purpose. Um, as we get into the book of Numbers, uh, we're, this is what I would call another introductory uh, discussion today. Next week, we'll begin really getting into more of the drama of Numbers, but we're still laying some of the groundwork. And the reason for that is because we have to remember that we are approximately 4,000 years removed from the culture discussed in the book of Numbers. There are lots of similarities in human nature. Human nature has not changed all that much over these centuries. But, uh, but there are some things about human nature and about organization and culture and things like that that have changed greatly. Um, and you know we're going to be he- talking about some of those things today as we did last week as well. Um, but as we're talking today, we're going to talk about um, about different roles and responsibilities within the nation of Israel. Welcome, Sandy. We're glad that you're here. Good to see you. All right. Good to have Sandy Sturch back with us. Speaking of people who lead us on journeys, absolutely. Um, but absolutely. So we so um, when we are talking about the book of Numbers, we need to understand some, some terms, some roles, some positions, some responsibilities. And, and I think that's true not only back then, but, but nowadays, you know, when, when people come into the church and they walk into First Presbyterian Church, they may, they may come in and they may walk into the contemporary service and they see the, the preacher there in just, you know, in what I'm wearing now, maybe just a, a sport coat and or a dress, or you know, just something like that. And you know, if it's you know, depending on if it's me or Mitchell or Becky preaching, they may be wearing a sport coat or a, a dress. They go in the traditional service, and almost all the time, the preacher's wearing a dress. It's uh, and they're going to wonder why. You know, it, I mean, just you know, those of us who've grown up in the church, one, we we take for granted certain nomenclature, certain terms, certain roles. Um, you know, it's funny uh, just how, how even across Christian lines, how things are different. I remember once when there was a new Anglican church that was opening in rural Goochland County, Virginia. Uh, I was the closest Protestant pastor to this new Anglican church that was opening, and so they invited me to come and be the, the, the ecumenical representative uh, in their in their church dedication. And so I showed up and I said, well, how formal is this? I said, oh, very formal. We're Anglicans. Wear, you know, if you've got a robe, wear it, all that kind of stuff. And I, you know, at that time, I, I still had the, I had the Geneva tabs and everything just like I wear them here. So I walked in and I walked into this, uh, into this service with all these Anglicans. And if you've ever been to an Episcopal or an Anglican service, the first thing you'll notice is they wear all white. And what do I wear every Sunday morning? All black. So immediately I stick out like a sore thumb. And then, you know, and, and I said, and then I started to, to, to meet people on the commission. And I was like, oh, well, this is, the, this is the canon theologian. This is the suffragan bishop. This is the presiding bishop. This is, and I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I thought he was the bishop. Oh, no, that's the bishop? Wait, oh, he's a bishop too. But the, what about this guy over here? Was it, well, you know, so is he a priest too? No, no, no. That's the senior warden of our vestry. But he's still wearing a, he's wearing a robe too. Is he not, but he's not a priest? No, no. He's just a layperson like, like those other people over there. I was like, but okay, but he's wearing, and, and I'm looking around and it's like, I don't have a hat. Why don't I, you know, I'm a Presbyterian. I, where's my funny hat? Um, you know, I'm starting to get a little jealous. And then I notice that then, then the big muckety-muck presiding bishop comes in. 
of, of this diocese. And it's interesting how all the other guys in the room start sort of gravitating over and they pick up his hand and they start kissing his ring. And I'm like, no way. No, uh -uh. I'm about to go all Calvin, Jonathan Edwards on him. Just, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, I am a, I am looking and feeling more and more Puritan as the day goes on. Uh, but it's funny because, you know, cause obviously I stick out because I'm the only one wearing the black robe. So he, he gets to me after everybody else has kissed his ring. He's like, he's like, hey, how you doing? Just get, just handshake. I was like, okay, there was no expectation that I too would kiss his ring. <laughs> kind of like. And, and it was, and so, but I, but I was sitting here, I'm, I'm in the church business, and that was hard for me to separate all these roles. What's this guy do? What's this guy do? What do I do in this situation? What are our roles? Um, but there, you know, whenever you're with a group of people or whenever you're on a team, there are always certain roles and responsibilities that, that need to be covered and that need to be understood for the team to operate well. Uh, I was never in the military, even though I sometimes, you know, I like to use military analogies, but I did. One of the things that was really transformative in my life was, was my time playing high school football. And one of the things you learn in high school football is that positions matter. Um, Roddy Clack back here was a high school football coach for years and years, and, and he knows better th than me everything I'm about to say on the screen. He, he will correct me later, but the, a few things that I did know. You know, in football, your position matters. Your role matters. Your assignment matters. I, I'm not very big, but I, you know, at the time uh, in high school, I was mean and I was fast. Uh, and so I played linebacker and I played offensive guard. Now I played offensive guard, which is a down line position, with guys who were 220, 250, <laughs> then there was me at 165, and then 230. Uh, and, and so, and, and so we, you know, we had a pretty big line, but I was, kind of, but I was, the, I was a pulling guard. I could move quickly. But me and my other, my other lineman teammates, we took great pride in the fact that our job was a people job. And, I meant, and what I mean by that is our job was not a ball job. My job, with, with the exception of a fumble or the occasional, very occasional opportunity to catch an interception or something like that, my, my job was not a ball job. My job was a people job. My job was to block people and tackle people. I considered my game successful if I never had to touch the ball. I mean, that's, that was part of, uh, that, was, that was my whole role, was to protect my quarterback or my running backs from other people. Whoever had the ball, I protect them. But my, ball, my job was not, was not one where I touched the ball. I was not going to score. My, I scored every game if I got good successful blocks and good successful tackles. But if I had started as a guard insisting on carrying the ball every now and then, things would have gone haywire. For example, if, uh, you know, if, I was setting, if, if I was blocking for a running play and the running back was running behind me and I decided, you know what, it's my turn, and snatched the ball from him, that would not have been a good idea, right? You know, part of it was part of it was that we all had a job to do. And I remember the first time I ever heard the expression "stay in your lane" was not a driving expression. It was from my football coach who said, "Stay in your lane when you're when you're blocking. Stay in your lane, whatever that assignment is. Don't don't start freelancing. Don't just start picking out people to block. Don't start just running your own plays. It's you know, it is about." Understanding your job, understanding your role. It's about making sure that you are where you are supposed to be and that the, uh, and that the, the role that you have 
and the, the responsibility that it covers is being covered. And so, so we all knew, whether you are a quarterback or a guard or a tackle or a kicker, we all knew the, the role and the job that we had to play. If you were a receiver, you had to know your routes you had to run. If you were the quarterback, you needed to know what that route was supposed to look like so you could get the ball to the right place. All of those things are important. You need to know your role, you need to your, know your responsibility, and you know what is not your role or responsibility. You need to stay in your lane. And, and the reason I bring this analogy up is because to make a football team work, you need all of these roles and all of these responsibilities covered. If you start, if you start, uh, if you start leaving out positions, then, you will, I mean, then you're going to get in serious trouble. If, you, if everybody's not doing their job, then you start to fall apart. And that's true just about in any organization or any movement. You need people to understand roles and responsibilities and how these things all work together. Um, as we talk today about, uh, about the people of Israel and their journey through the wilderness, we're going to be talking about four positions on the team. Think about Israel as a football team. There were basically four different types of positions on that team. Everyone, every one of those roles had a, had a, job, a job to do, and every one of those roles was important. Um, and so, let, you know, let's, let's, think about, you know, let's think about what these roles, uh, you know, how these roles relate and how these things go together. Um, I will say that there is not an unimportant role in any of these. Now, there are some that get more attention than others, but, but all of these roles are important. But each one has a specific responsibility for the people of Israel. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, when we, think about, when we think about the positions and people and things like that, it's, it's easy to think about the big high-profile glory positions like quarterback or, um, you know, or, uh, uh, you know, um, a guard, a point guard in basketball or something like that. You know, the ones that seem to kind of get the most attention very frequently. But every, every position is important, particularly in the church, particularly in God's economy. Um, I remember once when Esther Campbell, who was one of our Wycliffe missionaries, came and visited our, our church. Um, Esther was a child of missionaries, and her parents were actual Wycliffe translators. They, they worked in Papua New Guinea translating the Bible into one of the, I don't know, hundreds of languages in Papua New Guinea. And, uh, and one day when, uh, when Esther had, had grown and she had become a missionary herself, she was an educator. And her job was actually, she was not a translator for Wycliffe, but she worked for Wycliffe as a teacher for the translator's kids. And what was interesting is that, you know, all the, in Wycliffe, which is a Bible translation society, the people who get the most attention are, of course, who? The translators. The people who are translating the, you know, Tagalog or whatever into, uh, into or the Bible into those languages, whatever they may be. And, but what Esther did was she said, okay, so you've got a tr one translator here. And then she called up 17 different people from the congregation and had them stand across the front of the church. He said, it takes 17 support people to keep one translator in the field. 
seven, I mean, you're talking about teachers for their kids, administrators, fundraisers, I mean, all of those folks so that that one missionary can do the job that God has called them to do. Now, God has called each one of those other people as well. But if you have anybody along this chain who drops the ball, who doesn't do their, who doesn't do their role, doesn't make their block, then that Wycliffe translator is not going to be able to have time or energy or the opportunity to do that translation. Same thing for the positions in, uh, in, the, uh, in the church and in the people of Israel. Let's, look, let's take a look at those four positions uh, as, as they're identified in the book of Numbers. Excuse me. The, um, first of all, we have the Levites. Um, the Levites are... Uh, a special tribe that we're going to talk about in just a second, uh, and and they are you know they cover a variety of duties: the Nazarites, the priests, and then the people. Um, you know, very often when people talk about the roles of the of the leadership of the Hebrew people, they forget about this last one. But this is very critical, not only for the people of Israel but also for us. So the Levites, the Nazarites, the priests, and the people. Let's take a look at these. First of all, who are the Levites? Oops, excuse me. Who are the Levites? The Levites are one of those groups you hear about in the Bible that, that, that are often, it's a name that's often used, but maybe isn't, it isn't always clear about, about the people to whom, uh, about whom we are speaking. Um, but the Levites are basically the tribe of Levi. At least that's how they start. One of the things that's important to understand is that all of these positions, with the exception of the people, the people are pretty static, with the exception of the people, all of these positions evolve over time. And so we're looking at really the initiation of these, of these different roles, the Levites, the Nazarites, the priests, and then the people. By the time of the, the temple is, is built, and by the time of the second temple, um, you know, these, these positions have evolved to some degree. There, you know, there becomes a rivalry between, say, for example, the priests and, the, and other types of Levites and things like that. But we're talking about really in its infancy, these roles being clarified by God. So who were the Levites? The Levites were the tribe of Levi. Who's probably the most famous member of the tribe of Levi ever to live? Oh, okay. Well, Aaron, okay. Okay. We've got team Aaron, and then who's the other one? Moses. Um, I, mean, some of you, I mean, no, that's okay. That's all right. You know, people, it's, it's, it's good that Aaron gets some people on his team, because most people would automatically say Moses. Um, but, you know, but they're brothers, so they're obviously from the same tribe. But, they're, you know, but Moses and Aaron were from the tribe of Levi. And, they, and the tribe of Levi had a special place and the people of Israel. If you look at uh, verse 150, but appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the, the, uh, the tabernacle and all its furnishings and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. So, I mean, the, the Levites had a number of special duties. One is that they were to take care of the Ark of the Covenant. They were to move it, they were to take care of the tabernacle and move it and do things like that, but that was their job. Um, they were also to take care of the tabernacle. Um, I, mean, you, I mean, consider that the tabernacle, which was the portable temple of God, the tabernacle was huge. It was heavy. There were about a jillion pieces to it. And 
every piece had to be accounted for, moved, assembled, disassembled, reassembled. All of these things had to take place. And this, was, this all involved a lot of time and a lot of specialized skill. And so God took the clan, or rather I should say the tribe of Moses, and said, I am going to give you a special job among all of the tribes of Israel. And what happens is that the, the tribe of Levi is sort of, if you will, cut out from the main, or separated, distinguished from the main body of Israel. And it is given a special role among all of the tribes of Israel. So if the Israelites are the chosen people, in one sense the Levites become a special chosen group within Israel to perform a certain role. And this was expressed in the way that they camped. So you've got, as we talked about last week, um, and this is, an out, this is an orientation of the camp where we are looking from the east. There's another orientation here where we can look from the west, but um, or excuse me, from the, uh, with the north at the top of the map. But the idea was that of all the tribes, you had, um, you had Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh, who were, who were on the west end. On the south, Gad, Reuben, and Simeon. On the north, you had Asher, Dan, and Naphtali. And on the east, you had Issachar, Judah, and Zebulun. But you'll notice that the tribe of Levi is sort of circled, is camped all around the tabernacle. And you've got three groups, the Merites, the, Lev uh, the Gershonites, and the Kohathites. Each one of those represents a clan of the tribe of Levi. Now, and people hear this expression, Koh you know, Kohathite, Gershonite, and they think, oh, well, is, that like a, is that like a bishop? Is that like a, a pastor? Is that No, no, that's, that's your family name. So we would be the Fullerites. You know, uh, you would be the Ekbergites. You know, that's, so, so that's what that means. So when you hear, a lot of people get really freaked out when they start hearing about all the different ites in Scripture. If we started referring that in our daily life, it would be a lot more, it would be a lot more uh, simple. But, but you have these families, these, as they would call them, clans, um, that, are, that are different portions of the, land, uh, of the tribe of Levi. The Kohathites, that is the family, the, larger, or the, the smaller family group within the tribe of Levi to which Aaron and Moses belonged. So they are here on the east end. Now it's interesting too, as we, as we think about the arrangement of each of these tribes, how, how their position does matter in a certain degree. But let's, let's think about it. First of all, you know, each, before they were set up, each of these clans was numbered. So even though they were not counted in the regular census of Israel, they were counted as individual groups. The Gershonites, there were 7,500 males. The Kohathites, 8,600 males. The Merarites, 6,200 males. So they were counted. It's not that they didn't count, but they were counted separately from the others. And then in their position, each group had a position as well as a role. Remember, it's not just about the position, it's about the role. You know, um, first of all, let's talk about the positions for a second. Um, these three, um, the Merites, the Levites, excuse me, the Merites, the Gershonites, and the Kohathites, you know, their position isn't nearly as important as the Kohathites. What's, what's important about being on the east end of the tabernacle? What? It's the entrance. It's the entrance. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's where you come in. They were the ones who kind of controlled access to, uh, to the tabernacle, which meant they were also the ones who controlled access to 
the, the tent of meeting, the holy place of God. Now, what's also interesting about that is if you look, you know, who else is on the east end of the tabernacle? Yeah, the tribe of Judah. What's special about that? Who's from the tribe of Judah? Yeah, Jesus. Before him, David. You know, again, it's fascinating that, that you have here this, you know, th this alignment between those two. Yeah, Kim? Yeah, yeah, they the, the um, yes the sub, the Kohathites here the sub, they were a subset because the priests kind of kind of form a subset as well the Kohathites yes they are the same family but the, but this is an even more specialized group within them that very good yeah thank you for pointing that out um, because you do they become different because they do begin to hold different roles yes. Yeah, this is, this is family. This is hereditary, absolutely. Absolutely. There are interesting points, though, where you do have, um, I forget where it is, it, um, you do have occasionally Levites. Uh, when Levite also, the, the term Levite did evolve into sort of a positional name as well. And occasionally you will read about Levites who were, um, who were from another tribe. It's very rarely. I'd have to look that up, but it was, uh, it, it, it was understood at this point that this was their clan, that it, that it was a that it was a hereditary, familial relationship and connection. So you've got the um, so you've got the different positions around. Of course, there was also the marching position. You'd had the tabernacle in the in the middle of the in the middle of the uh, the column as. As the people were on the march, and then you had the different, um, you had the different uh, tribes arrayed around them, and of course the tribe of Levi would have been the ones directly marching with the tabernacle as well. So when they were on the move, but you know, let's let's talk about the different roles that the different groups of Levites had. The Le first of all, the Levites set up closest to the tabernacle, and the tribe was divided up into family groupings that each had a special job. The family of Gershon, or the Gershonites, camped on the west side. They're right here. They camped on the west side of the tabernacle, and their job was to take care of all the walls and curtains of the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle was huge. It was an ornate tent. Somebody has to fold and carry that. Have any of you ever been backpacking? Have you ever tried to, you know, you go to, you go to REI or you, depending on where you buy your tent, you go to REI, you go to Walmart, whatever, you buy your kid a, can, a tent for Boy Scouts or something like that, and you set up the tent for the first time, and then it's time to put it back in that little bag. <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever tried to get the tent back in that little bag? It is impossible. I mean, it's like I, only robots could have packed it the first time because... Because you have to, you, you do it, you undo it, you, you try to do it again. I mean, it takes about 10 times before you can actually make it fit in the case. You, well, you can do that too. But if you have a tent, you, you, know, when you're, you know, when the scoutmaster says it's time to go, you have to get it back in the bag. And, you know, eventually most of us just give up and just stuff it into the backpack or something like that. But it's, then it's wet and gross and all those kinds of things. But it took a specialized, it was a specialized skill, and, and especially when you consider that, this, that these walls, these, these fabrics were, in, were incredibly heavy and incredibly 
value, uh, valuable. There are also lots of ropes and cords and all those sorts of things. And, but, so they were basically, uh, they were responsible for all of that. The second group, the Kohathites, who were on the south side, um, this group of Kohathites, they were, uh, they were the ones in charge of the ark of the table, of the lampstand, of the altars, the sacred vessels, all of those things, all of the stuff in the tabernacle, they were responsible for it. So, uh, so again, these are you know, incredibly holy objects. So that's why you have the priests and the Kohathites you know, coming essentially from the same family. They were, they were the ones who were dealing with the most sensitive material, with, the, you know, with all of those extremely valuable pieces of furniture and equipment. So all of those things, uh, those were the responsibility of the Kohathites. The Merarites camped on the north side of the tabernacle, and their job was to take care of all the tent poles and framing elements. Uh, You know, basically the superstructure that holds up the tent. And it's amazing when you read about the construction of the tabernacle, about all the buckles and all the places and all the, all the specs for, for the types of joiners and all that kind of stuff. Um, have you ever been camping and realized that you misplaced one of the poles? And suddenly you don't have a tent anymore, you've got a blanket. And that's no fun. Um, they were the ones who had to make sure that all of that stuff was in order. And, uh, and then finally, you had this other group of the Kohathites, which was the, the direct family of Moses and Aaron, and they were the priests. And they were the ones who, whose job, their job, was to guard the sanctuary itself and to protect the people of Israel. Now, it's fascinating. You know, they, they are not just the ones who, who, work, in, um, who work in the, uh, in the tabernacle, Running the, you know, running the worship services, one of their first lines is to set up in front of the door to guard the door. Now, here's, now what's interesting is that, in a sense, they are guarding the tabernacle, the entrance of the tabernacle, from anybody just running in you know, and, and defiling the tabernacle, but they're also protecting the people as well because if, you know, it's not just that they're protecting the tabernacle. If somebody, a little kid, a, you know, a, a person you know, who was angry, just started storming into the tabernacle, that was not just rude, that could be deadly. I mean, to, to, to walk in angry into the precincts of the holy God you know, in, in an unclean state was deadly. And we read about that throughout Le- Leviticus. I mean, that would be like walking into a nuclear reactor unprotected or walking into a nuclear power plant. I, mean, if you walk in, I don't care who walks into a nuclear reactor, you're going to die at that point. But, um, but it, was a, it was really about protecting the tabernacle from the people and the people from the tabernacle in some sense. Remember, this is the, this is the seat of God's power. And so they had, in addition to their interior functions in the tabernacle, they also had this exterior guarding function of the tabernacle. But, the, but together, if you take all of these roles together, the, really, the Levites had three primary roles. The first, and this really is the umbrella of everything they do, is to protect the sanctity and worship of God. I mean, one of the reasons that they took such good care of the tabernacle was to say that this is special, this is holy, this is important. You know, they were to be the guardians of the sacred space, and they were to be the, the guardians of the one for, uh, of whom, uh, whom it represented. 
And so their, their job was to make sure that people understood this is a special place. You know, think about the, you know, I mean, you, if you go to, if you go to a, a convenience store or you go to a, you know, just any regular old place, you know, if there's a, there might be a security guard sitting outside or something like that, or maybe not, take it or leave it. Uh, you go to a library or something like that, there may or may not be a security guard. You go to Buckingham Palace, what do you see? extremely disciplined soldiers who, are, who have a specific uniform and a specific role. And it's not just that they're there, it's not just their, you know, their training that protects Buckingham Palace, it's their reputation. You know, people know that this is a special place and, and their presence signifies that. And so it sort of elevates the understanding of the holiness of the place. The second job was to promote and protect the spiritual health of the people. Levite's second job was to protect the people from, you know, from a casual treatment of the holiness of God. Remember, when I talk about the holiness of God, I am talking about an energy, a characteristic, a, an, an aspect of God's character that is totally unhuman. It is, ever since the fall, we are totally alienated from the holiness of God in its purity. It is, again, like radiation. It is that kind of power of the sun, the supernatural power of God, that you know, if it were to come in contact with our unholiness, would be absolutely destroy, uh, destroy, uh, destructive to us. Um, so remember, when God is referred to as a consuming fire, they weren't just speaking metaphorically. You know, you, you, you see times when, from Sodom and Gomorrah to individuals, where people were consumed by the holy fire of God because of their defilement, because of their, you know, of their recklessness. And so, in a sense, these guys were here, or these families were here, to protect people from wandering over the cliff, from wandering into danger, not just defiling the sanctuary, but to protect them as well. Um, in times of war or physical danger, God raised up warriors to deal with the physical threats that people faced. And during the year, you know, during the peaceful times, God kept the Levites around to help people deal with spiritual threats. So they were, a, you know, they were there to be spiritual leaders of the people to protect their health and safety. But probably one of the most identifiable jobs, the third role of the Levites, was to move the tabernacle and then to mobilize the people when the tabernacle moved. Um, you know, it's, it's, to say that the Levite's role was just to move the tabernacle misses the point. Because the, what would happen if the cloud lifted, the tabernacle got packed up, and they moved the tabernacle, and the people stayed in camp? That sort of misses the whole point, right? And so they were also there to mobilize the people to follow God. And, and you know, as you think about the church, we sort of have all three of these roles as well. I remember this past spring when, when we were um, wrestling with COVID issues in the church. And I, I'll tell you, th this past spring, uh, there were some real tense things happening related to COVID and, and related to our culture. And some of those things were really deeply felt by your session. Uh, matter of fact, at one point I wrote a letter to the session when, when things were starting to get kind of, let's say, a little chippy, a little hostile. And it just, you know, it just sort of overwhelmed me. And, and I really had to kind of retreat for a while and, and had to assess the situation. And, and 
the, you know, the Lord just revealed to me, it's like, this is not just angst. This is not just the COVID jitters. This is not just political division. This is spiritual warfare. And, and I went to the elders and one night, you know, during, you know, one of our session meetings, I, I, I read this chapter of, or I read some of the stuff about the Levites. And I said, I said, we need to understand that our role as the spiritual leaders of this church is to do these three things. It is to, you know, number one, it is to take care of this congregation, to maintain this congregation, to protect the health of the people, and to mobilize us to follow God in spite of where the culture may, move, may be moving. And the reason I found this particular analogy relevant to our session is because the session is a body of both lay leaders and clergy. You look at the Levites, the Levites are, I mean, these, these three groups are all lay people. They're not ordained priests. Whereas this group of the, sub, the subset of the Kohathites are, they are clergy. And if you look, it's, it's a really neat sort of analogy for the session. The session is made up of both ruling elders, which are lay leaders of the church, and teaching elders, who are the ordained clergy leaders of the church. And we all have our role to protect the, health and, uh, the, the spiritual health of the people, to, uh, uh, to maintain the holiness and reverence of God by maintaining the church and, and the worship of God, and then three, to mobilize the people. Not just to, you know, it's one thing to say, great, we know where God's going, but we're not going to go, but to actually mobilize the people for that as well. So the, so the role of the Levite has, has transferred in many ways even to our own time. And that we, you know, our church is made up not just of clergy, but of lay leaders as well. And, you know, and it's, it's important that, that we really think about that. Because there have been times in church history where the only people mattered were the clergy. And there have been times in church history where the pendulum swung the other way and there were certain sects that developed with absolutely no clergy and they considered that anathema. They considered that an accursed sort of system. But when, but when we see how God designed His people to be organized, there were both. And, and it's not that some were more holy than others. The idea was that everybody has different roles and different positions. So, I look around this church. There are, there are six ordained, uh, and one soon, soon to be a seventh, ordained pastors in this congregation. You know, right now we have 24 elders active on the session, but many more. We have, we have deacons. We have lots of other ordained, uh, ordained folks. But we also have lots of other non-ordained folks who do a lot of, uh, I mean, lay people who are, who are not on staff, who are, who are not ordained, uh, ordained lay people, ordained. And, and one thing I should remind people is that elders and deacons are ordained. They're just ordained to, what, different positions, different roles. But, you know, again, to keep one pastor in the pulpit, to keep one senior pastor in this pulpit at this church, takes around 50 staff people. If I were to line them, off, uh, line them across the front of this room, everybody from Sheila Figueroa to Janet Sladen to Jeff Carowin to all those people who work here, you know, they, are, you know, they all have a role to play in this church. It's not just the pastors. And so the, you know, these are all, 
these are all roles that are critical. One of the things that, that's important to understand about the Levites is they were, because they were separated for these roles, they did not have the, the normal sources of land or income that other members of, uh, of the people of Israel had. And so how did God provide for them? The way, that people, the way that God provided for them was that the other tribes supported the maintenance of the temple and the maintenance of the tribe of Levi. I would argue that the modern analogy of that would be your tithes and gifts support not just the pastors, but the mission and, and ministers, I mean not just capital M ministers, but, but all the staff who work in the church and who, who work full time for us, from the household staff to, again, the senior pastor. So there are, you know, so there is a there is a team of folks who are supported by you to do the work of God in the church, and and these things are all critical. Um, but these, you know, but I, I wanted to show this to you because the, you know these the the Levites have a lot of different roles. The Nazarites. Let's. I, I've been. Oh wow, I'm way over time here. Um, I'm not going to. I, I, clearly, I'm not going to get all the way through. Um, the Nazarites. Who are the Nazarites? If you if you read about the Nazarites. There's not very much about them, but if I was going to continue the, the, the analogy of the football team, I would say they're like the cheerleaders. Okay, now what do I mean by that? They're the yell leaders. What do I mean by that? The Nazarites don't necessarily have a job, but what do they do? They are people who take special vows. The, the Nazarites take special vows. Um, let me get to... Where am I? Well, I, I was really way behind. The Nazarites are people who take special vows to show you know, their dedication to God and His power, to God and His holiness. In other words, they are to be, I mean, their real role is to inspire others. So what do they not do? They, you know, they do not partake of the fruit of the vine. Um, you know, so they, they don't drink wine. They don't, I, I'm, I'm not sure if that went all the way to grapes. You know, could you eat a grape or not? Um, but the idea was, you know, that you were not to indulge in those types of worldly pleasures. Um, you were to, you know, you were to, you were not to cut your hair, which is a, a sort of a signal that you were not to be, you were not to be uh, obsessed with your appearance and, and worldly identification and things like that. Um, you were to touch no dead thing. You were to be defiled. These were all things that that were that were life changing things, and they were, in a sense, people were saying that the Lord is worth our sacrifice, that the Lord is worth our commitment, that the Lord is worth giving certain things up for the sake of His glory. So what role does that fulfill? It's a cheerleader. You know, it's like we're here to inspire the rest of the team. You know, when you think that, that this is all just a bunch of hooey and it's just a bunch of silliness, remember God is worth our commitment. God is worth our dedication, because these folks for a season would dedicate themselves to God you know, for the sake of inspiring the nation. Now, did they have a job like putting together the tent or, or putting together the tabernacle or performing sacrifices? No, they didn't have that kind of job. But they, their, their job was to be a role model. Well, unfortunately, one of the most famous of, uh, of the Nazarites was not much of a role model at least not all the time. His name was Samson. You all know him. Another better example of a Nazarite was, uh, was Samuel. 
Samuel was a Nazarite, or at least he's thought to have been a Nazarite. An important, an important factor often in the dedication of a Nazarite is that sometimes that's a vow made for people before they were born. You know, for example, in the case of Samson, Samson was dedicated as a Nazarite by his mother. Hannah dedicated Samuel as a Nazarite. Um, and so it was, it was something that was, again, it was not intended necessarily to be a permanent thing. Like you're not, if you were a cheerleader, a yell leader, if you went to A&M, whatever, I mean, that's not, I mean, maybe, maybe you always feel like one, but that doesn't mean that you, you always have that role. Um, I think there is such a thing as a Nazarite alum, <laughs> but, um, but, the, but the job was to inspire the people. Um, and again, they dedicated themselves to this. So this is the first time we really hear about the Nazarites. The next group are the priests. The priests, if we go back to that, uh, if we go back to that uh, camp, they were the ones who were right there at the entrance to, to the camp. And they were the ones who had the, you know, some of the most specialized jobs in the, in the tabernacle. They were the ones performing sacrifices. But they didn't just perform sacrifices. They were also preachers and teachers. They did teach the law to the people. Um, that, was a, you know, that was an important role that they had. They too were to be an example of holiness. But they also had played a very important role related to the spiritual health and public health of the people. They were the watchdogs on things like, um, like dietary regulations, on things like the defilement of dead bodies, the proper burial of, uh, of bodies, all, that, all those sorts of things. And those things are important because you think about when you're moving with hundreds of thousands of people, the, you know, suddenly ritual defilement and public sanitation don't look, so, don't look so different. And so they were the ones who sort of monitored a lot of those sorts of things too. And so the priests were in charge of, the, in, a, in a sense, they were the defilement police along with the Levites. The Levites were kind of the enforcers of a lot of that. But they were the defilement police of both spiritual defilement and physical defilement. And so you had, you know, you had the, the priests who, who covered a variety of roles. You had the, 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 the priests, and then you also had the high priest. The high priest was a very special role that was, that was designed, of course, to, you know, to, uh, to perform the most holy functions of the tabernacle. And the, most, and the most holy function of the tabernacle, believe it or not, was to deliver the blessings of God to the people. It's fascinating. You know, we always think that the real role of the priest is to provide sacrifices. But if you look at you know, the role of the priest is, um, is to not simply perform the sacrifices, but rather it is to pronounce the name of the, of the Lord and to, and, to, uh, and to declare the blessing of God on the people. It, one of the most beautiful passages in, uh, in the Bible comes from the book of Numbers relating to the role of the priest. And that is that the high priest um, on the Day of Atonement each year was to pronounce this blessing over the people. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, that, that blessing is not just a nice benediction. This was a message from God to the people. 
You know, it was a prayer that God would receive these people and understand that they are received. And so the whole idea is that, you know, again, as we, as we think about what, this pra- what these phrases mean, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord, what does that mean? May the Lord be made happy by you. That's not a, that's not a requirement that's, that you would know that the Lord loves you. That you would know that, that your heavenly Father smiles upon you. Why was that important for a people who were living somewhat disconnectedly in the wilderness? It might be nice to know that God had not brought them out here just to die. That God had brought them out to bless them. May He show you favor. That's an announcement that God, God has chosen you from all the people of the earth. And He's going to show you favor in this, in this season even in this season of difficulty. And, so, and Moses says, so they, so they shall put my name, excuse me, the Lord says, so they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. One of the jobs, I think the most important job of the priests was to tell the people that you are the Lord's people. You are the Lord's people. Because if we remember, again, what is the first commandment, the first phrase of the first commandment? It's not just, you shall have no other gods before me. It is what? I am Yahweh Eloheinu. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. The priestly blessing and the priestly function was to remind the people that they were God's people. Every day and in every way. And you know, the functions of sacrifice and all these sorts of things. These were all gifts that God gave for a very specific purpose, to remind them that they were His people. Why why would God have them perform all of these sacrifices, all of these rituals, all of these things, every day in the tabernacle? What's the purpose of that? The purpose of the entire sacrificial season, uh, the entire sacrificial system was to create an environment where the holiness of God could interact with fallen man in a way that demonstrates his mercy and grace. How do we know that? Because that was the role of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus on the Christ on the cross was to do one thing, to restore our relationship with God, to bring us closer to God, so that we could be in communion with Him, so that we could be in fellowship with Him, so that we could be embraced by Him. We see that in Jesus, and we see the sacrificial system, which is really an elaborate, non-Jesus way of atoning for and and meeting God in His holiness. We see it in that system, and the priests administer that system so that we can be in relationship with God. And why do we say that's a gift of grace? Because God didn't have to do that. God provided the means. So the whole idea is God God bought the ticket. He packed your suitcase. He told you how to to apply for a passport. He He did everything so that you could be in relationship with Him. And that's what the priests were doing. They were administering that, if you will, that ritual bridge to God so that the people could be in relationship with him. Very important role. Let me, since we're almost out of time, let me just skip to that last, 
last most important, la that last role within the positions of the, of the team of Israel, the people. It's real easy and has been, I think, misapplied and mishandled for years to think of, of the clergy and the people as a caste system. Um, in the sense of they are separated, but never the same. Uh, I, I, I believe that that is a wrong way to think about the people of Israel. It's kind of like you think about the Levites. The priests were Levites. Now, all, the, all, the, you know, all of the Levites, excuse me, all of the priests were Levites. But not all of the Levites were priests. Okay? In the same way, all of the all of the people of Levi, all the priests and everybody, were part of the people of Israel, but not all of the people of Israel were Levites. There's a difference between separation and distinction. The, the priests were distinct from the Levites, but they were not separated from them. The, the people were distinct from the Levites, but they were not separated from them. What's the difference between distinction and separation? Well, again, you've heard me say this before. If I distinguish my head from my body, I say, this is my head, this is my body. What happens if I separate my head from my body? Big difference. Okay? The priests were never intended, I do not believe they were ever intended to be a special caste. They had a special role, they had a special responsibility. They were not a whole other order of human being. Pastors are not a whole other order of human being. I remember once telling me something, uh, somebody once said to me, it's like, well, do you, uh, what was it? Um, somebody who came out of a much more hierarchical church background said, do you, go to the, do you go to the grocery store like normal people? I was like, I don't even know where to begin unpacking that statement. It's like, you know, like well, no, I don't. But it's, meant, but it's not because I don't like normal people. It's because I don't have to eat. You know, we, we just, we sort of absorb God's holiness in the, in the world. And, um, but, there, you know, but there are people who have this idea that, you know, that, that, that the leaders of the, of the church, the leaders of God's people, are supposed to be the separate caste. The difference between a caste and a class is, or a different or a role is, is that separation, distinction sort of thing. Yes, the priests were expected to be examples. Yes, the Nazarites were supposed to be examples. Yes, the Levites were supposed to be examples. But the people of God also had that role. Remember Leviticus, excuse me, uh, Exodus 19. When God gave the Ten Commandments, He said this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the, all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I mean, clearly there were priests who had a special job, but the entire role of the people... The entire role of Israel was to be an example and a light to the nations. And so all the people of Israel had a role to fulfill. Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so, in God's position, on God's team, the people are probably the most important role. Because I don't care how many pastors you have, how many priests you have, how many Levites you have, they're never enough to get the coverage 
that God set forth in his original mission, which was to go forth, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with God's glory. You can't do that with just ordained Presbyterian pastors. Or add to that elders and deacons and every other denomination. The clergy can't do it alone. It's got to be all of the people of God who become His holy nation. Yes, there are other people who have roles. I have a role. I mean, you, know, you have a role. But, we, but together, our role is to be that light in the darkness for all people. And so as we think about these different roles, the reason I spend so much time on this today is because you're going to hear about the Levites. You're going to hear about the priests. You're going to, see, you're going to hear about the Nazarites. You're going to see all these things. And you're going, to, you're, going to, you know, you're going to need to know some of these distinctions. You're also going to see what happens when certain groups don't do their job well. Or when they think, I don't like my job so much anymore, I think I should do his job. Or I think that I, think that I could do that person's job better. God has made these assignments, He's set out these positions, and He has given us these roles for the sake of moving through the wilderness together, but more importantly, for the sake of filling the earth with His glory. All right, I realize that was a lot to absorb this morning. Um, next week, we're going to start really getting into some of the drama of numbers, and so I really want you to, I really want you to come back for that. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this time. And thank you for, for giving us each a role in your economy and in your kingdom. Thank you for giving us each a position on your team so that we can, so that we can begin to understand more fully the special gifts, the special calling that you've put on each of our lives. Now, Lord, we ask that you would send us out from this place ready to serve you in whatever role that you have designated. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you.